Hammer films only ever made the four Mummy movies. And of these four, arguably only the first, The Mummy, made in 1959, starring Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, the latter in the title role, well, that's the only one that's actually any good. The last entry in the genre, 1971's Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, has its supporters. It's certainly a good-looking movie, with a lot of atmosphere and some decent suspense sequences, but it's undermined by a confusing script based on Bram Stoker's Jewel of the Seven Stars, and serious production difficulties. I mean, Peter Cushing had to leave the film early, early on due to his wife's illness, to be replaced by Andrew Keir, and director Seth Holt died suddenly during production before he could complete the film. Michael Carrera stepped in for the last week of filming and made a valiant attempt to put together a, a coherent film from the footage. The other two Hammer Mummy movies were both made in the 60s and have attracted, a few, admi attracted few admirers. Both Curse of the Mummy's Tomb and the Mummy's Shroud are essentially B-movies made on low budgets to form half of a double bill, but neither is without points of interest. Despite a low budget and the lack of any of Hammer's regular top-line stars, 1964's Curse of the Mummy's Tomb is surprisingly good-looking and, under Michael Carrera's direction, manages to create some good atmosphere, particularly once the action moves to turn of the century London. Whilst the film's mummy lacks the sheer presence that Lee was brought to the role in 1959, it still makes an effective monster, especially when looming out of the fog of its victims. John Gilling's 1966 The Mummy Shroud has far lower production values, with most of the action confined to a studio-bound recreation of Cairo, consisting mainly of whitewashed interiors. It does at least boast the presence of Andre Morel, although top build he, only, he makes an early exit. Roger Delgado gives a satisfyingly over-the-top performance as the villain, with Catherine Lacey's as cackling fortune-telling mother, giving him a good run for his money. The film's mummy was not the most convincing-looking mummy, although ironically it was closely modelled on a real mummy which can still be seen in the British Museum. Anyway, this mummy is surprisingly violent, dispatching its victims by throwing them through windows or pouring acid over them. Set pieces such as, the, as these are undoubtedly the film's highlights, well handled by Gilling, who also manages a startling sequence when the mummy first opens its eyes, and an equally startling climax where it quite literally tears itself to pieces. Ultimately, both films demonstrate the fundamental problem with mummy films. It's virtually impossible to vary the plot. It's always the same. A tomb is desecrated by American or European archaeologists invoking a curse which involves a mummy coming to life and murdering them. Both films try to bring in variations. Curse mixes in a wandering Jew element with a character turning out to be the mummy's brother and murderer who is cursed to live until he dies by his brother's hand. While Shroud brings in a subplot involving the mummy protecting the tomb of a long-lost uh, boy pharaoh. But essentially, they're just remakes of the 1959 film. Blood from the Mummy's Tomb at least tries to be innovative, bringing in reincarnation and dispensing with, a, with, um, dispensing with any actual mummies perambulating around London. Interestingly, both Curse and Shroud feature rapacious capitalist businessmen who want to exploit the mummy for profit, exhibiting, 
it around the world as some kind of fairground attraction. This immediately makes the mummy's main victims much less sympathetic, whereas in the 1959 film, one couldn't help but feel that the archaeologist's victims were essentially blameless. In these two films, you were left feeling that some of the victims had it coming. Of course, the main reason for this plot device was to induce some audience sympathy for the mummy in each film, both of whom lacked Carice's complex backstory in Hammer's first mummy movie. And that's the problem with movie mummies. Once they've become a mummy, swathed in dirty bandages, they lose their individuality and capacity for any kind of emotional expression. Only Lee in The Mummy succeeds in projecting any, any emotion via his blazing eyes and longing looks at the reincarnations of his lost love. At the reincarnation of his lost love. Hammer's subsequent mummies were, were bit part players, lacking Lee's non-verbal acting skills. Plus, other than murder people, the filmmakers never find anything really interesting for the mummy to do. You might carry off young women displaying lots of cleavage, but ultimately he presents no sexual threat. Unlike a vampire or the bestial likes of Mr Hyde or the werewolf, nevertheless, despite all of my reservations about Curse and Shroud, I still have a fondness for them. They aren't classics and certainly can't match any of Hammer's best films on any level. But they are efficient B-movies, which deliver 90 minutes or so of solid, if undemanding, entertainment. They're certainly far better than any of the later Universal Mummy pictures of the 1940s. I once watched all of these in a movie marathon on some long-defunct digital channel and nearly lost the will to live. While Car the Karloff original was glacially slow, it at least had some good set pieces and a decent cast. The best of them was the semi-sequel, The Mummy's Hand, which, despite some irritating comic relief, builds up to a nightmarish climax, its shuffling mummy with its withered arm making a surprisingly terrifying monster. The mummy's tomb is just about bearable, but marks the start of Lon Chaney Jr.'s tenancy of the mummy's role, although in reality it was usually stuntman Eddie Parker under the bandages, because Chaney A. claimed to have an allergy to the, um, to the uh, makeup they use, and B., was usually drunk. The last two, The Mummy's Ghost and The Mummy's Curse, are simply terrible though, with plots as indecipherable as the hieroglyphics on the walls of the Egyptian sets, a deathly pace and incredible lapses in continuity. Egypt, 4,000 years ago, a land of strange rituals and savage cruelty. Many of their secrets are still hidden from the eyes of 20th century man. Secrets that protect their dead. Supernatural powers that once released can live again in our modern world. The Mummy, the Living Dead, bringing terror and death across 4,000 years. He was a high priest of the great god Karnak, until one night he attempted the ultimate in blasphemy. He was condemned to guard forever the princess he had loved and protect her from intruders. Go now. Go and destroy those who desecrated the tomb of our princess. 
who robs the graves of Egypt dies. He who robs the graves of Egypt dies. so often I like to air, air an unpopular opinion about some film or TV series that seems to be beloved by many, which I think is overrated or just plain crap. Recently my heart sank when a streaming channel I get via my Roku box finished its rerun of 70s and 80s cheese fest The Love Boat and replaced it with Quantum Leap. Now I'm sorry but I have never understood the following that the latter has garnered. I tried watching it when it first started showing in the UK, but quickly gave up as it became evident that, despite an apparently interesting science fiction premise, this was, in reality, simply a peg to hang a series of utterly mundane, often nostalgia-driven period dramas upon. I mean, it sets up the idea of its protagonist being able to travel through time, then confines his time-travelling span to his own lifetime. Okay, I know that made it cheaper to produce as everything was set in the US of the 50s, 60s and 70s, but it immediately precluded any interesting science fictional or proper historical adventures. Then we have the problem of the apparent randomness of his jumps into different people's lives, different people's bodies at different times. They aren't random. Each time he's put the for a purpose to set something right in their lives and change history in the process. But we'll come to the problems that sets up later. But who or what is guiding his jumps? Aliens, some kind of authority that stands outside of time as in, um, as he marks the end of eternity and is, um, is dedicated to maintaining the true timeline. Or is it God? Sadly, it always seems that the programme makers tended toward the latter explanation, both the most boring option and the one that sits diametrically opposed to its science fiction premise. Worst of all, if it really is God guiding him to solve other people's problems each week, which is actually made quite explicit in the first episode of the second season, uh, when Dean Stockwell's character states quite clearly God is taking control of this program, then doesn't, doesn't this just reduce Quantum Leap to being highway to heaven with time travel? Then there's the problem with our hero's changing of history every time he, he sets something right. Each of these would obviously change the very future from which he comes. Indeed, logically, back in that future, <clears throat> his colleagues helping him shouldn't be able to tell that history had changed because their memories of it 
would have changed as would his. Yet every episode they're able to tell them how it's changed. While changes to one or two personal timelines might not have a huge effect on the future, cumulatively they could well create significant alterations to history. Yet this is never addressed, with his future apparently remaining constant. Then there's the very idea of setting things right. Who says that history didn't work out the way it should have in the first place? This brings us to the idea embodied in Quantum Leap that there is somehow a correct timeline for history and that certain events in the past have changed history, which is nonsense. History isn't a river. It doesn't follow, flow down a natural route from which it can be diverted. History is simply an accumulation of events. What happens, happens, and then their consequences are history. There is no predetermined path. Even if there was, as Quantum Leap seems to presuppose, who or what has been derailing it to the extent that someone needs to change it on behalf of God? Again, the issue is never addressed in this ill-thought-out series, which is what I really resented. The pretense on Quantum Leap's part that it was some kind of science fiction uh, show, when in reality the science fiction premise is simply a gimmick to enable what amounts to an anthology series with, a continu with continuing central characters involved in some very mundane, as I said before, not very interesting adventures. It never tries to properly explore any of the more interesting issues it raises, instead opting for the laziest path possible and relying on schmaltz and heartwarming middle American values to try and build an audience. Look, if I'd wanted to watch weekly tales of divinely inspired do-goodry, then I would have watched the aforementioned Highway to Heaven. Basically, Quantum Leap is just sentimental pap of the worst kind, and frankly, I preferred the love boat that had no pretensions. Listen to the beat of your heart, Marianne. You hear the beat of fear within you. Fear that will rise to a shattering crescendo of terror. You have strayed into a world of evil, where frightened people are held in the grip of unearthly horror. Beware of pity for the handsome prisoner in the Castle Meister. Beware of love, for in your heart is only the pulsating throb of terror. Starring Peter Cushing, as the doctor locked in mortal combat with overwhelming evil. Also starring Frida Jackson as Greta, who served the vampires with insane loyalty. <laughs> you needn't be afraid, she's dead. Martita Hunt, the Baroness, victim of her own son. Beautifully, Von Morlore, France's latest sex kitten, as Marianne whose beauty was her passport to the twilight world of the undead. <laughs> David Peel as the Baron, blindingly handsome, yet his kiss transformed the most beautiful girls into monsters.
all about transgressive behaviour, being a successful movie monster, that is. My musings earlier about mummy movies have left me thinking about just why Egyptian mummies don't make for truly great monsters. And, as I previously mentioned, unlike most other classic horror movie monsters, the mummy presents no sexual threat towards all those women he carries off. Sure, his interest in, in them is usually motivated by the fact they are the reincarnation of his lost forbidden love, but there's never any suggestion that he's going to be going to be able to do anything physical about it, even if he is still equipped. Because let's not forget, the mummification process usually involves various of the vital organs being pickled in jars. Of course, if he could do something physical with those women, then that would represent some very transgressive behaviour. His 4,000-year-old uh, embalmed, embalmed corpses having sex with the living women would surely count as necrophilia. But without the sex, what's left for the poor old mummy in terms of transgressive behaviour? Things like drinking blood or cannibalism are out. He's dead and needs no sustenance to keep his embalmed body alive, except regular infusions of juice from Tana leaves in the old Universal Mummy movies of the 40s, of course. By contrast, other movie monsters indulge in nothing but transgressive behaviour. Vampires in particular are all about the sex. All that blood drinking is clearly a substitute for oral sex. They also spend a lot of time targeting innocent young women, preferably virgins, and violating, violating them with their perverted practices. This is particularly worrying as the vampire has typically been undead for hundreds of years, making him the ultimate and dirty old men. But the vampire's depredations are a complex business. The clear implication that his victim has sometimes been asking for it, in that they are sexually promiscuous and or a willing participant in, in, the, in the blood drinking stroke sex. And this is particularly apparent a hammer's Twins of Evil, where it's the naughty twin who first falls under the spell of the local vampire, with a more virtuous sister resisting his advances. But more often than not, the vampire's attacks are more akin to rape, with his attentions being forced upon an unwilling victim. Like rape, it isn't about sex so much as, a, as power. Not only is the vampire usually a member of the nobility, but his attentions usually leave the victim helpless in the face of his power. As for the other popular movie monsters, well, Dr. Jekyll's transformation into Mr. Hyde is clearly sexually motivated. The good doctor's bestial alter ego allows him to indulge in all sorts of sexual depravities his normal repressed self could only fantasise about. Much the same applies to the werewolf, who also crosses another boundary by eating people. But as we've established, the poor old mummy does none of these things, leaving him a bit dull and repetitive. If you need further proof of the need for successful movie monsters to exhibit transgressive behaviour, just consider how dull the zombie, a close cousin to the mummy, was in film, just shuffling around, looking vaguely menacing as they quietly decayed, until the late 60s and Night of the Living Dead, when they became cannibals. Since then, they've slowly but surely established themselves as king monster in the movies, despite the fact that, flesh-eating aside, they're still pretty boring, lacking any personality or motivation. When he sees that face of yours, he's going to step on it like an itty-bitty frog. Frogs. Are you equating my face to a frog, Mrs. Quibble? No. Frogs are ugly, Mrs. Quibble. Are you suggesting that 
through the nose and be good enough to rub in the corns and bunions of my tormentors. No, let go of my foot. Are you suggesting that my face is less handsome than your foot, Mrs. Quibble? Because if you are, you might just as well go up in summer. It has to be said that many films that were slipped into obscurity should probably stay forgotten. 1980s Dr. Heckle and Mr. Hype, for instance, a truly what-the-fuck experience, which quickly outstays its welcome. It is one of Canon's earliest productions following the studio's takeover by Golan and Globus. They clearly intended it to be a major release. I recall that during its making it got a lot of coverage in the UK press, centering around the fact that it was to feature Oliver Reed playing a comedic uh, take on Jekyll and Hyde. But it never appeared in cinemas and, as far as the UK was concerned, it just seemed to vanish. What happened was that Cannon had, upon seeing the completed film, deemed it unreleasable, and instead of selling it direct to cable t instead selling it direct to cable TV. It isn't hard to see why. It's all over the place stylistically and tonally. Touted as a horror comedy is neither horrific nor comedic enough to qualify as either. Writer-director Charles B. Griffith, a veteran Roger Corman collaborator, clearly thought he had a groundbreaking concept in giving us an ugly Jekyll character who turns into a handsome and smooth ladies' man. Except it had all been done before, multiple times, notably notably in Hammer's 1962 Faces of Dr. Jekyll, which incidentally had featured Oliver Reed in a supporting role. And they repeated the formula in comedic fashion in The Ugly Duckling with Bernard Breslau, and of course, there had been Jerry Lewis's The Nutty Professor. Unfortunately, Dr. Heckle and Mr. Hype doesn't improve upon any of these. In large part, the problem lies with Oliver Reed's portrayal of the two title characters. As the ugly, green-faced and misshapen, misshapen podiatrist Dr. Heckle, he actually gives a surprisingly sensitive performance, creating a likeable character who is easy to sympathise with and handles the comic aspects with aplomb. His hype, however, is played relatively straight as a completely narcissistic bastard who ends up murdering the women he tries to seduce when they fail to flatter him sufficiently. You can see how the murders are meant to be blackly comic, but as performed by Reed, they're simply brutal and unpleasant, contrasting jarringly with the preceding comedy sequences featuring Heckle and his colleagues at their foot clinic. Director Griffith laid the, laid the blame squarely with Reed, who hadn't been his first choice for the role, but rather that of the producers, claiming that while the actor had been great as Heckle, he had no, he had no idea of how to play hype, opting simply to play the part as, in essence, himself. Now, while it's true that Reed's performance in the hype role does feel like a variation on the sorts of womanising rogues and bastards he'd specialised in during the 60s and early 70s, one can't help but feel that if this wasn't what the film required, surely it was the responsibility of the director to, well, direct him to do something more appropriate? Whatever the truth of the situation, what seems clear watching the finished film is that the script was simply not giving Reed enough, work, enough to work with, with the hype role. 
certainly in dialogue terms, it really affords them the same kind of comedic opportunities um, that, it do, that his, his heckle role does. The film is also stylistically all over the place, with what are supposed to be madcap comedy sequences at the clinic mixed with full-on slapstick, including a bunch of Keystone Cop-style policemen chasing hype around, all interspersed with bouts of violence and hype going around menacing and murdering women. At times, Griffith seems to be harking back to his Corman days, with the scenes between Heckle and his police detective patient reminiscent of the Doc Dentist sequences in Little Shop of Horrors. Indeed, the cast includes a couple of veterans of that film in the form of Mel Wells and Dick Miller, both of whom give decent enough performances with the material they are given. Which goes to the rest of the cast. They try hard, but the laughs just aren't there. The attempts at comedy are just too scattershot, all too often incidental to the main plot, giving the impression that a lot of it was made up as they went along. To continue the Corman connection, the production even looks like those early films Griffith scripted for him, with production values that can best be, be described as cheap, which is a problem when the film was clearly seen by its producers as some kind of prestige production, a vehicle for their big name star Reed. Dr. Jack, Dr. Heckle and Mr. Hype is one of those films that you watch and can't quite believe what you are seeing. Sadly true in many of Reed's films from this period though. You were left wondering not only just how it was made, but also why. Reed, to his credit, is smoothly professional, clearly giving it his best shot. The trouble is that the whole thing seems misconceived and a complete waste of his, and everyone in the cast for that matter, talents. In the year 1860, I, Baron Frankenstein, was sentenced to death on the guillotine. Why? Why had the world condemned me? Because I was the first man to create another living being. The first unnatural man. But because his brain was affected, because he could not control his animal instincts, he was hunted down and brutally murdered. But I have escaped the guillotine, and I shall avenge the death of my creation. born yet. You will witness scenes never before seen on a motion picture screen. You will see Frankenstein take the eyes of one man, the brain of another. You will see lifeless hands begin to move. You will see a man turn into the world's most terrifying monster.
okay, to continue what seems to become this edition's theme. I'm well aware that in my last bit of musing about horror movie monsters and transgressive behaviour, I neglected to mention Frankenstein's monster. Well, as always, there's the sex angle. Like the mummy, the monster is always carrying off young women in low-cut dresses, or even their underwear, with the clear implication... Well, they're in their underwear, he isn't. He isn't. Um, with a clear implication of a sexual motive. Indeed, in the 1931 Frankenstein, there's a scene where Carlos Monster lumbers into his creator's bride, bride-to-be's bedroom. The way the, the way the sequence is cut, with the bride-to-be lying prone on a bed, hair disarrayed and limbs akimbo, in the aftermath of this, um, clearly implies rape. Of course, there's always the question of whether Frankenstein has constructed his monster with the requisite equipment for that sort of activity. Certainly the creature's attempts to get the good doctor to create him a mate seems to imply that he is equipped. Interestingly, in the original novel, written before science had any understanding of genetics, Frankenstein worries that if he creates a bride for the monster, they will procreate a whole race of mishappened monsters. In reality, of course, as they would have possessed someone else's organs of procreation, they would have produced offspring that looked like whoever had donated those particular organs. Worst an argument for the monster's transgressive behaviour being rape can be made. An argument could also be made that it's the creature himself who represents transgressive behaviour. I mean, some years ago I read a book entitled Dreadful Pleasures by one James B. Twitchell, which attempted a Freudian analysis of the classic horror monsters. The Frankenstein monster, according to Twitchell, derives much of his psychological impact on viewers because he is the product of a natural sexual procreation. He is, of course, not born of woman. Indeed, no woman is involved at any point in his his creation. He is entirely the product of a man. Put crudely, the monster is the result of masturbation, a terrible warning of what happens when a natural, i.e. solo, sex usurps the normal sex act involving a man and a woman. Indeed, bearing in mind that the original novel was written by a woman, it could be argued that the story serves as a warning of the terrible consequences of trying to usurp womankind from the rightful role of creators of new life. Of course, if we go back to the novel also, Frankenstein was assisted by his friend Henri Clerval in creating the monster. Therefore, the monster is the creation of two men. And in these days, we could, of course, take that as an analogy to gay marriage. Um, and the monster is a terrible warning of what happens when you let two gay men bring up a child. As I say, somewhere there's some homophobe who probably thinks that. Anyway, there you have it. Frankenstein's monster, less a masturbatory fantasy than a masturbatory nightmare. <laughs> Frankenstein. The name stands for fear. Frankenstein. He shocks the world as he mocks the devil. Frankenstein. He creates monsters of men. Frankenstein's most terrifying experiment comes to life. Frankenstein created woman. Who am I? Who am I?
indestructible matter. What is it for? What is it for? To give life after death, my friend, that's what it's for. Life after death. Peter Cushing as Baron Frankenstein, who crosses swords with Satan in his fight for immortality. He lives. See, hence he's alive. Susan Denberg as Christina, the deformed creature transformed by Frankenstein to a living beauty. Within her, a dead man's revengeful urge to kill. Kill him. Kill him. Kill him, Christina. Forley Walters, the doctor who helps Frankenstein to violate the laws of nature. Christina, my dear, that man possesses such power, such knowledge, that well, sometimes I don't even understand him myself. The boy Hans is the tool of the Frankenstein experiment. These boys are the cause of it. Come back! He's come back from the grave. Somebody's brought him back. on the Tesco Metro chocolate-covered peanut situation that I spoke about last time. After my failed attempt to buy a packet of the aforementioned peanuts with a Tesco Metro employee telling me that they couldn't be sold as they didn't exist, despite being on their shelves and in their packaging, I decided to check out the current situation on this front, you know, given that a few weeks have gone by. Okay, in truth, I simply happened to be in my local Tesco Metro buying a newspaper the other day and remembered the peanuts fiasco, so I decided to see if they were still on the shelves, despite not existing. Anyway, the shop seems to have gone all in on the contention that the item is non-existent. They have vanished from the shelves. Their place taken by a second box of packets of chocolate-covered raisins. There's no mention of them anywhere. It's as if they are trying to convince shoppers that the chocolate-covered peanuts never existed, and anyone who claimed to have bought them in the past is suffering a delusion. This instant rewriting of history is like something out of Orwell's 1984. Just what is it that the chocolate-covered peanuts have done to deserve being written out of Tesco history like this? It makes you wonder just how many other products have suffered a similar fate. Is this why I can't find anyone else who remembers various now defunct confectionery and snacks of my childhood, like the Tingle Bar or Rancheros. Now, as I noted last time out, it's entirely possible that the non-existence of the chocolate-covered peanuts is confined to my local Tesco Metro, and that if I went to the main Tesco on the edge of town, or to a branch in another town, I might find them still on sale. But as ever, I just can't be asked to do so. Plus the fact that I can get them for Lidl for 20 pence cheaper, even than, than the reduced price Tesco are claiming that their chocolate-covered peanuts could be bought for, if they existed, means that I'm not actually interested in buying them from Tesco anymore. Nonetheless, 
The whole bizarre episode still fascinates me. I've never before had the experience of trying to pay for something and being told that it doesn't exist. Perhaps I should simply have replied okay then, if they don't exist, I'll just walk out with them. I can't shoplift something that doesn't exist. I have a feeling that had I done so, alarms would have been going off, security guards trying to detain me and the police, police would have been called. I'm still intrigued by the fact that the non-existent peanuts had an on-shelf price label exclaiming chocolate peanuts new lower price, implying they must have existed prior to this to have an existing price to be reduced. Maybe it was that reduction that triggered their non-existence. Actually, I did notice the wine gums are now, now labelled similarly. Maybe if I tried to pay up, buy a packet of those, I'd find myself going through the same conversation at the till as to whether or not they exist. Luckily, though, I don't particularly like wine gums. Stop press. Another update. I was in Tesco Metro again a few days ago, again buying a newspaper, and for some reason I felt the urge to check on those chocolate-covered peanuts. There they were, back on the shelf. But now, after examining a packet, I think I have the answer to why the packet I tried to, tried to buy apparently didn't exist. When I was trying to buy a packet, all the packets were what I thought was the regular size of 180 grams. However, these new ones, with a reduced price on them, are only 150 grams per packet. Ha! So, they've reduced the, 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 um, the size of a packet by, near, by nearly half but have reduced the price only by around 10%. Hardly good value. So there you go, that's what it was all about. They had the wrong packets on the shelves. Those are the ones that don't exist anymore. The original 180 gram packets did not exist anymore as far as they were concerned. But the, for some reason, they've been put on the shelves. Uh, I don't know, sedition at, at Tesco obviously. There you go. Another good reason, though, for not buying those bloody peanut chocolate covered peanuts at Tesco, because they're trying to rip you off by selling you less for more. It is not the offspring of witchcraft or Satan. It was created by man. It will grow to be 15 feet tall. It will have huge eyes, webbed hands, hooked claws. It will walk upright. And it will mindlessly, mercilessly kill every living thing it meets. Prophecy. John Frankenheimer made his name as a film director in the 60s with a string of intense monochrome movies highlighting strong male characters facing various moral and ethical dilemmas. They ranged from the prison drama Birdman of Alcatraz through conspiracy thrillers 
like the Manchurian Candidate in Seven Days in May, to science fiction with seconds. With the 70s, he turned to colour, producing muscular action dramas like Grand Prix and literary adaptations like The Fixer and The Iceman Cometh. Then his career seemed to go off the rail somewhat, to the extent that, by 1979, he was found to be directing the eco-horror movie Prophecy. Now this is another of those films which seemed to become difficult to see with no TV outings or home media releases for many years. This despite the fact that not only did it have a named director, but it was also a studio-backed picture, a Paramount production, which by the look of it had a reasonable budget. Having recently had the opportunity to see a decent copy of the film, it's easy to see why it isn't well remembered or particularly loved by either its studio or director. Made in the wake of Jaws, which, which uh, saw the light of day in 1976, Prophecy is fashioned as a revenge of nature type film, with visitors and residents to a mountain community falling prey to something big and nasty in the woods. These events are framed by a dispute between a ruthless logging company busy deforesting the area to provide trees for its paper mill and the local Native Americans, and an investigation into possible pollution of the local river by a, do um, by a doctor sent by the Environmental Protection Agency. Being a John Frankenheimer film, there are plenty of alpha males on hand, but here they seem to be full of insane levels of testosterone fueled aggression. The main male characters are always angrily butting heads, be it the doctor and the logging company exec clashing over whether or not the paper, paper mill is responsible for the local population, is population and the subsequent mutation of the local flora and fauna, the exec and the leader of the Native Americans arguing over access to mountain roads, one confrontation results in an insane axe chainsaw fight, or the doctor and the Native American leader trying to establish just who has seen the most poverty and deprivation. These constant confrontations quickly become wearisome and do little to advance the plot, which progresses jerkily enough as it is. Only the underlying conflict between uh, science and spirituality does anything to help move the story along. The Native Americans believe the force doing the killing is a spirit sent to defend the forest against its destruction by the loggers and all the other phenomena observed there, giant salmon and tadpoles, for instance, are similarly the result of divine intervention. The doctor, of course, believes it's all down to dangerous levels of mercury used by the loggers as a fungicide uh, being put in the water that is causing not just mutations to the local wildlife, but also the sickness afflicting many of the Native Americans. Of course, the doctor is proven right, and the avenging forest spirit turns out to be a giant mutated bear, which eventually chews and claws its way through most of the cast before meeting its doom. Which might sound exciting, but the film takes too long getting there. There's far too much talk and earnest discussions about the environment, which simply serve to slow down the action. Moreover, the script is far too clunky to allow any suspense to be built up around the monster attacks, which are always abrupt, coming out of nowhere with a little or no build-up. On the plus side, however, the film looks great, making effective use of some beautiful Canadian locations. Also, the monster itself is surprisingly well realised, based around a reasonably realistic-looking mutant bear costume that, to be fair, rarely looks, rarely looks like a man-in-a-suit monster. 
Frankenheimer wisely very rarely allows it to be shown in full, instead giving us close-ups of its snarling visage or glimpses of slashing claws. The final battle between, the, between survivors and mutant is, as one would expect from Frankenheimer, very effectively staged and filmed. The cast are basically B-level, certainly lacking the presence of the likes of Kirk Douglas, Frank Sinatra, Burt Lancaster or James Garner, with whom he had worked previously, but do as best they can with the material at hand. Robert Foxworth as the Doctor tends to underplay too much, while Armand Asante as the Native American leader overplays most of his scenes. Richard Dysart as the logging company exec is probably the most effective performance, refusing to play the character as a stereotyped corporate villain, instead giving the character some depth and nuance, while Talia Shire gives a restrained and dignified performance as the, as the Doctor's wife. In the end, prophecy is hamstrung by the way in which the script constantly pushes its messages at the expense of storytelling. The end result is a movie that isn't horrific enough to be a horror film, nor thrilling or, or suspenseful enough to be a thriller. More emphasis upon telling a clear story, simply allowing the eco-messages to speak for themselves, and better character development, rather than just presenting the audience with constant conflict, might have yielded a more enjoyable, not to mention commercially viable film. In his defence, Frankenheimer later claimed that he made prophecy at the height of his battle with alcoholism, which probably explains a lot about the film's directorial problems. Sadly, his career never really seemed to properly get back on track with a series of not entirely satisfactory films. Of his post-prophecy film projects, and one should mention he had a number of far more successful TV projects in this period, so of the, of the theatrical-released films, only Ronin really stands out for me with his last film, Reindeer Games, being particularly dismal. couldn't explain it, but there it was, alive, in the deep, deep waters of the Amazon, a throwback to a creature that had existed a hundred million years ago, immensely strong and destructive. A woman's beauty, the bait that brought it out of its lair. See underwater thrills never photographed before. See titanic underwater battles never dreamed of before, in this most terrifying of the science fiction adventures. I'm sorry, I'm not going to talk about the creature from the Black Lagoon and his transgressive behaviour. I don't care that he appeared in three films, although only the first one is really any good. That doesn't make him a classic horror movie monster. Thus, he doesn't warrant inclusion in this edition's discussions on the subject. Although, I have to say that if we were, in, were to include him in the discussion then the whole scenario of half-man, half-fish, or whatever the hell he's meant to be, some kind of prehistoric humanoid amphibian, I think. Anyway, this creature stalking 
nubile young women in, this, in, in their swimsuits swimming in the titular lagoon, then it's pretty obvious what transgressive behaviours he's exhibiting. Voyeurism for one, I say voyeurism, but it actually turns into stalking. But the most glaringly obvious transgressive behaviour being implied is that of bestiality. I mean, he's an amphibian lust lusting after and carrying off to his lair human women. What else is he going to do with them there? Quite why a scaly amphibian would find human women attractive is, of course, never addressed by any of the films. After all, if the situation be reversed, would the audience be expected to believe that a human man might find a scaly green woman with gills sexually alluring? Well, um, but the sexual attraction that various monsters and aliens apparently feel for human women is an enduring theme in horror and science fiction movies not to mention pulp magazines. Just look at some of the late 40s and early 50s covers from Planet Stories involving scaly green tentacled monsters molesting um, nubile young earth women in space suits that show lots of cleavage. Bearing in mind the place and era most of these movies were being made in, 50s USA, it is tempting to think that they are commenting on what would, back then, have been considered a transgressive behaviour, interracial romance. But perhaps this, this really would be to read too much into what are essentially B-movies. But you never know. 